0: Legalize dot
1: Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Anthony Peake, who joins us to discuss his book, The Hidden Universe An Investigation into Non Human Intelligences. Since our very beginnings, human beings from all civilizations across the Earth have encountered the others, intelligent, self motivated beings that are clearly not human in their origins. Peake offers a comprehensive survey of such otherworldly visitors, from gods, angels, demons and jinn, to hobgoblins, poltergeists and ghosts, to UFOs and aliens. In addition to detailing the history of these encounters, the author attempts a bold explanation of the true nature of these beings. He explores the increasingly frequent entheogen encounters facilitated by substances such as ayahuasca, DMT and LSD as well as the entities encountered by individuals suffering from Alzheimer's-related Charles Bonnet Syndrome, young children's so-called invisible friends, and the seemingly independent beings met during lucid dreaming and near-death and out-of-body experiences. This book continues Anthony Peake's work in developing a completely original model of reality based upon an amalgamation of ancient belief systems, subjective human experiences of the extraordinary, and the latest discoveries of neurology, neurochemistry, quantum mechanics, and cosmology. This model proposes that consciousness, far from being simply an accident of evolution, is the fundamental source of the material universe. It suggests that at its most basic level, everything that is seemingly physical is rendered into existence by consciousness. Hello and welcome, Anthony, and thank you so much for joining us once again on legalizedfreedom.com.
0: Absolutely wonderful. I think it's my fifth time on the show and I was, I've just recently posted on Facebook. I think that I've done your show more times than any other show I've, I've done over the last 10 years. Wow. So, well,
1: yes, yeah, at least five times, but, uh, yeah, you know, at least, yeah. Uh, well, anyone who enjoys this can find the links to all the previous shows on this, the, you know, the page for the show at legalizedfreedom.com. But in any event, we're, we're together today because we're going to be talking about your latest book. Uh, it's entitled The Hidden Universe, an investigation into non-human intelligences. Uh, Before we jump into that, as per usual, just give for for listeners who don't know uh, a little bit about yourself, your background, your work in general.
0: Yeah, okay. This this is my 11th book. Um, all my books deal with a similar subject, which is understanding what the role of consciousness is, and what the role of reality is, and how the two interface. Um, my philosophy has always been to do the science first, and then actually start to move into areas of speculation after you've built the groundwork of the science, uh, because I very much believe in the old diktat of Marcelo Trui, that extraordinary claims need extraordinary proofs. And I like to make sure that my readers make up their own decisions by referencing in all of my books extensive references to academic papers and everything else as well. Um, originally, I was from uh, Merseyside, but I've lived all across the UK. Um, and it's over the last what twenty years or so that I've really focused myself on to writing um, and. I've really enjoyed it. Um, My books seem to sell comparatively well. I mean, it was sold around about 100,000 worldwide now. And it's in most major European languages and many minor European languages. And breaking news, this new book, it's the first time uh, ever that a foreign rights deal has been negotiated before the book was actually published, which is fascinating. And I'm delighted to say the the first language this book will be out in will be Greek. Um, and indeed the uh, greek publisher was so interested in my work after meeting me over coffee that the next day he was over in the uk um he was he had a series of meetings he was over from athens uh, and he actually shot off and went to my publisher arcturus and bought the rights to is there life after death the extraordinary science of what happens when we die um, and both those books will be out in greek in about three months time so all very exciting times at the moment
1: Oh, mm, splendid. That's very good news all round. Now, about this new book, in some ways it has been prompted, if not all, in many of your other books, in which you have discussed uh, non-human entities, non-human intelligences and encounters with them. And you were prompted, I think you could explain this in more detail yourself, but you were prompted to sort of say, what is the common thread here? You know, I wrote about this subject and this idea came up. I wrote about another subject and the same idea came up. So is there something tying this all together? So, um, does that sound accurate?
0: No, very much so. Um, all through my writings, uh, from near death, exp- writing on near death experiences, out of the body experiences, uh, entheogens like dimethyltryptamine. One of the major themes of all of these is that when people are in these altered states of consciousness, they encounter other intelligences um now whether these are in- these intelligences are just simply projections of our own subconscious or whether they have some form of independent existence is something that has long intrigued me and in the book my investigation is very very all-consuming in the sense that i review entities and entity encounters right from thousands of years ago right up to the modern day Um, and indeed what stimulated it was my own mother who had an extraordinary experience Where, in um, uh, a state of hypnagogic hypnagogia or sleep paralysis in her bedroom she encountered a grey and she described this grey in very distinct terms she phoned me up the next day after the encounter And this entity what disturbed me a great deal was my mother lives on her own and this entity she woke up in the middle of the night and this entity she saw her door open and this entity came through the door looked at her and realized that my mother had seen it and it reacted it dodged back behind the door and when she described it she said it had huge black eyes and two holes for a a nose and slit for a mouth and my mother wouldn't know a classic grey if it bit her on the backside. She, she's just not in that world, or she wasn't. She's no longer with us. But clearly, whatever she saw was was a, an archetype, and it's an archetype that goes right back. I mean, in the introduction to the book, I discuss the experiences of um, um, Graham Hancock. Uh, in his book, Supernatural, he describes how he came across a series of curious cave paintings down in uh, the Didyma Gorge in the Drakensberg Mountain in South Africa, a place called the Junction Shelter. And these beings were exactly the same as my mother had seen. But I, then I subsequently discovered that uh, around about 18 months ago, two years ago, um, there were a series of caves that were discovered quite by accident in northern India in, in near two villages called Chandili and Gotit- Gotitola in northern India. And these caves, this cave system, as far as they could tell, were inhabited 10,000 years ago and have been sealed for 10,000 years they opened up the caves and they are full of cave paintings and the cave paintings are fascinating because a lot of the entities on the cave paintings are grays they have huge black eyes they have a very strange shaped skull which kind of sort of bulges at the back and People have argued and they will say that, oh, well, of course, ancient people didn't know how to paint properly. And therefore these are idealized human figures. I always argue that this is not the case because if you look at the paintings, say, in Los Caseros in, in Spain and, uh, the, the paintings that are found in, at these are, are ancestors, our, our ancestors certainly knew how to paint leopards and bison. And cattle very very precisely so these creatures are literally they are not ideal ideal types they are depictions of something that they did see now the question is did they see these entities as part of their normal environment did they see them when they were shamanic traveling did they see them when they took mind-altering substances we know that psilocybin and magic mushrooms and the mystical substance called soma has been known for generations. And I discussed this in one of my earlier books, um, opening the doors of perception and indeed the infinite, infinite minefield. And in both of these, I'm interested in hallucinogenic substances and how these entities are encountered there. So that's the basic premise of the book. It's well, what are these creatures? Are they real? Are they genuine? And if they are, can I come up with a scientific analysis and a scientific model to explain what these creatures may be. And I believe I successfully do this. It's for my readers to decide whether I'm successful in doing it. But I'm quite pleased with the conclusions I come to.
1: Uh, just as a brief aside footnote, by the way, the greys that you referred to, I know you've described them quite accurately. That's simply that what many people will know as the classic image of the of E.T., you know, the Whitley Strieber type, big dark eyes, as you say, two holes for a nose, slip for a mouth, bulbous head. That's what your, your mother saw and what, you know, this image has persisted
0: throughout, um, you know, time immemorial. Actually, Greg, as an, an interesting aside there, um, um, I'm doing an event with Whitley Strieber in California um, at the end of May. And Whitley interviewed me for his uh, podcast two weeks ago. And he's absolutely staggered about the conclusions I'm coming to. He is so excited about them. It's it's unreal. You know, he's saying, there's so many people I've got to introduce you to. And he thinks that the book is absolutely revolutionary. And this is the man himself. You know, this is Strieber himself. And he thinks the book is absolutely revolutionary. So I'm really quite pleased with that
1: yeah well he changed the face of u- ufology um you know sort of alien lore everything with his own experience and, experiences and his writing um but one of the one of the key ideas uh, that you build your case upon is this idea that is ancient and it persists throughout spiritual traditions uh, and uh, science has been revealing it to us uh, in the modern era and that is that the level of reality that you and I are experiencing right now, sharing together, is just one of many. To use spiritual or religious terms, there are upper, middle, and lower worlds. Just as are these, there are these different layers of reality. And in fact, the only worldview of the many, many worldviews that really denies, derides, or or pushes this idea aside is the hardcore materialist worldview, you know, almost everyone else seems to think that, yeah, we, we understand that what we perceive with our five senses is just a fraction of what there is. No,
0: absolutely. I mean, and this is the the tragedy of material reductionism in that it's a profoundly successful model of how physical reality works, but it is at a loss to explain consciousness. It's at a loss to explain hallucinations. It's at a loss to explain anything that cannot be broken down into its component parts. And, of course, quantum physics has now shown that the materialist reductionist model, which effectively quantum physics was discovered because of it, the whole thing breaks down there as well. You know, the idea that, that what we believe to be solid reality is nothing of the sort. Uh, in the book, um, I opened the book with a discussion of... Um, In 1773, the the famous uh, British uh, dictionary writer Samuel Johnson was walking in the Scottish mountains with his his, um, biographer Boswell, and he was discussing, they were discussing the writings of um, Berkeley, the Irish um, philosopher, uh, philosopher philosopher-cleric, and Berkeley had written a series of books about idealism, the idea that thought is prime and consciousness is prime and physical reality is an emanation of consciousness and of course Samuel Johnson did his famous argument ad lapidem, lapidum where he kicked a stone that's the argument from the stone in Latin and he kicked a stone and he said I refute it thus and in the book I very much break that down to show just how utterly ridiculous that argument is because reality and I break it down and I say right let's just look at the kind of stone he would have kicked. It would have been possibly granite. Now, one of the main components of granite is something like aluminium, maybe. Now, that's made up of 14 protons and 14 neutrons. Now, if you then expanded that atom to the, to a sphere one kilometre in size, the actual central physical part of it the 14 protons and neutrons would be a one centimetre sphere in the centre of that vast nothingness. And whizzing round would be 13 electrons, which are point particles. And that is it. The atom is 99 to the power of 13 empty space. And just to to clarify that, that means ninety-nine point nine 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 six empty space and even the things that are physical within that the the supposedly physical protons and neutrons are indeed themselves not prime particles they're made up of quarks and quarks themselves are point particles so suddenly everything we think is physically real suddenly disappears in a puff of empirical science and of course, we never touch anything because the only reason we, you don't go through the chair and the only reason that anything is seemingly solid is because of electrostatic repulsion between the edges of the, these atoms and the, and the atoms of your fingers or the atoms of your backside or whatever. So suddenly the idea that there are other realities beyond ours is suddenly logical and self-evident rather than not at all. You know, we we know that 94 94 percent of the universe is missing you know the rest of the universe is is made up of dark matter and dark energy but we don't know what dark matter and dark energy are we don't know fully how the principle of black holes take place it has recently been discovered that that literally um information itself has mass that information has a physicality about it and the logical argument now is that everything at its baseline is information and information needs something to process it, and that's consciousness,
1: yeah, and indeed, as you basically said a moment ago, under that consciousness based model of reality, all that is uh, categorized as paranormal, paranormal, or supernatural suddenly becomes part of normal or natural, because even though we can't necessarily explain it as yet, or maybe ever but it becomes as you say not only feasible but actually to be expected and uh, and that's that's the game changer and when you also consider it that way then if you stick to the materialist paradigm then most of what we seem to experience most of what's out there suddenly is paranormal or supernatural and i would say if that's the case if you know if 90% of what it seems to be out there is coming under these mystical categories then maybe you need to think again about your definitions about your model no,
0: absolutely. It's one of these things that you know. You talk. You know, I talk when I, I, I lecture and I talk and I do debates and things with materialist reductionists. And as I say, you know, I, I don't have a problem with material reductionism. It's very successful. The reason we're now communicating now is because of the successes of material reductionism. It has given us a great deal, but it is incomplete. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's incomplete in the sense that, for instance, even at its basic level, the very, very large objects within the universe are explained by um Einsteinian physics, and the very, very small is explained by quantum physics. And yet the two are completely mutually incompatible. The actual calculations and the formula used to calculate the world of the quantum do not work in any shape or form if they're plugged into the calculations and formulae that are used in terms of 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 Einstein and Einstein physics. So clearly there is a there is clearly there is a hidden as as Einstein himself said there are hidden variables. Uh, my great hero scientifically is is David Bohm, Professor David Bohm, and of course David Bohm argued this that there are hidden variables that seem to be akin in many ways to holographics that seem to be linked in some way to information and an awful lot of researchers these days are rapidly coming to the conclusion that this is some form of digital simulation and that what we think is physical reality is built up of information and not only that but the information that we are existing within is some form of three-dimensional illusion something similar to a virtual reality headset Now, this then explains, can explain a great deal of the the nature of reality that mystifies us, because suddenly there's an explanation of where consciousness fits in with this, because, of course, consciousness is the hard problem of modern science. Modern science has no idea and is not even at first base of understanding how chemicals and electricity in my brain create me, create my hopes and my dreams, create Greg Moffat and your, your hopes and dreams, how indeed it is. As well, and I was discussing this with somebody yesterday as to how the magic of the fact of how my words are actually hitting your ears, and you are making sense of what is basically vocalizations by uh, a fairly advanced chimpanzee or a fairly advanced monkey. And these noises, and that's all they are, are actually transferring across through space to your ears. Are turning into vibrations in your ears, and your brain then processes that into ideas again. It's absolutely incredible how even at that basic level it works. And, and we're led to believe, or encouraged to believe, that
1: all of this uh, occurred randomly uh, for no reason, from 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 <laughs> mud,
0: basically. You know, <laughs> why on earth would that happen? Um, <laughs> Exactly. It's the idea, isn't it? You know, that if there's only ever been one universe, I mean, as we know from the cosmic anthropic principle, that if there's only ever been one universe, it got everything right first time, every time for consciousness to evolve. Now, if the many worlds interpretation is correct, the Hugh Everett the third idea and variations on the Hugh Everett the third, well, there's been trillions of universes or there are trillions of universes and we happen to exist in the one that's perfect for life. But at the moment, we, don't know whether the many-worlds interpretation is correct, so we have to work on the assumption that there's been one universe and it got it right first time. Uh, My issue or sort of further question when people use the
1: word simulation is that for something to be a simulation, either it has to be simulating something that already exists or previously existed or something that somebody has theorized that could exist. So, you know, we'll simulate it and see how that goes. Like a you know like a, a flight training program or something. So I, I wonder sometimes when people use the word simulation if they really mean that, uh, or if it's yeah. if it's just that this is the way things are. If we take the sort of information based reality models you're talking about, and actually the word simulation is maybe not quite what people mean. You know.
0: Yeah, it is. It is a wrong term. I mean, the simulation it suggests that, as you say, a simulation is a simulation of something. That is real somewhere else. I mean, it's almost the Platonic, the Plato idea mm. of the Platonic forms. You know that we exist within a simulation that is a, a denuded version of this pure place, the Pleroma, the, the the place of the gods, and everything that exists here are just facsimiles of that reality. But I think it's more complex than that. Now, I know that other other uh, writers have argued that we could be existing in a simulation that has been simulated by our distant ancestors uh the, the idea that we're existing in an in uh, our distant descendants sorry and we're existing in an ancestor sim and i know that this was the original model that was put forward by uh, bostrom back in 1999 when he wrote the famous paper about it um that i think is interesting but it's probably a little bit simplistic and we're probably anthropomorphizing this thing the very fact that anything exists at all is a mystery Because effectively the more simple things tend to, to, to be the way forward. So to have this incredibly complex universe, why does a complex universe exist when it'd be far more simple? The universe didn't exist at all. So the question is, what is it? And I think what, when we use the term simulation theory, I think all we're arguing is, is that reality is digital. The base of reality is digital and not physical. And that's it. And we, we can't really go any further than this. And, of course, these are the arguments put forward by um, great thinkers such as Stephen Hawking, you know, with his top down hypothesis of quantum physics, which he did with um, Frank Hartle of CERN. Also, the idea of the model is now starting to make more sense because they're now doing the mechanism of this whereby they think it's something to do with black holes, it's something to do with the Schwarzschild radius, it's something to do with the way information is smeared on the edge, on the outside of black holes and something called Hawking radiation, which I haven't got time to go into the technicalities of at the moment, but this is a very beguiling model and it, it is a very effective model for explaining what we experience. But this means there are other levels of reality that are all encoded within this reality. And as you rightly said, you know, the argument of the shamanic model of the upper world, the middle world, and the lower world, and this is consistent across virtually every civilization. And again, every civilization across the world also has entities. They also have these beings that seem to come through from somewhere else and break through into this reality or can be encountered in altered states of consciousness.
1: Uh, yeah, and that brings me on to, neatly onto my next point, actually, which is one, it sits alongside, builds on the, this idea of multiple levels of reality, and that is that the same entities encountered by different people, not just different people as in you and I being different and have, having perhaps, you know, doing ayahuasca or something or having a similar dream uh, encounter, but different peoples uh, separated by time, separated by distance, separated by tradition and culture, Uh, And some of these uh, common entities you detail in the book, uh, going right back to uh, ancient civilizations across the ages, and you find these commonalities. Now, sometimes they're spoken about and recorded differently, uh, but it's quite often in the imagery when the similarities become the most striking. But that led you and many others to ask, well... Do these entities then have some kind of reality in and of themselves, some kind of independent reality, if Anthony Peake and Greg Moffat can experience them in their own way in diff- at, di- at different times?
0: Oh, totally. And it's um, uh, one of the things that is fascinating me at the moment, uh, and I'm getting feedback on a on kind of fairly regular basis about it, is that um, there is a research project taking place at the moment at Imperial College in London, Financed by um, a a British multi-millionaire called Anton uh, Anton Bilton, Um, and what they're doing is they have a group of volunteers who are taking having injected into them dimethyltryptamine (DMT), the hallucinogenic substance. This is under control circumstance and it's completely legal. And what is happening is these individuals are taking DMT trips and they're coming back and they're reporting back as to what they encounter. Now, many of the people involved in this are postdoctoral students. So these guys are extremely bright. They're psychologists, they're neurologists, they're people who really know their stuff. And one of them who's part of my extended group is a guy called Dr. Carl Smith. And Carl is doing some fascinating work in his own right, in virtual reality and simulating virtual reality and and discussing about how perception works in terms of virtual reality. But he's one of the volunteers. And he was telling me that he, um, when he first took the DMT intravenously, he found himself in what's called the DMT zone, the DMT cage which is a kind of a location you find yourself in. You rock it out of your body and you find yourself in this place. And he said, while he was there, this entity came over to him and prodded him and said, you're doing this wrong. This is not how you should be doing it. Please do not do this again. It's You should not be doing it this way. And he then came to. And then two weeks later, he is injected again. He goes back, he finds himself in exactly the same location and exactly the same creature comes over to him and said, I told you last time. Please do not do it this way. It's the wrong way of doing it. Now, as he said to me, that entity, if it was part of his subconscious, it was telling him things he didn't want to hear. He wanted to think he was doing it well. So it wasn't fulfilling any form of expectations. And it was consistent in its message. Now, he is convinced that that entity was real. That entity was motivated. And that entity knew that they were doing it in the wrong way because of course the logical argument is you shouldn't be doing it this way you should be training yourself you know you don't you don't decide to actually um go uh pearl diving without any training without teaching yourself how to breathe correctly or if you go scuba diving and everything else you have to be trained to do it but we seem to dive into these alter alternate states of consciousness just at a whim you know we just give ourselves the drugs and we go there but of course we're not trained and this is why people in traditions like the um, Tibetan dream yoga and other people within shamanism, they're trained over a long period of time to be able to go to these places. But it seems to suggest that there are ways and means by which we can communicate with these entities. And the shamans and the ayahuasqueros in Latin America – and other individuals in what would be termed more traditional societies who are closer to nature than we are. Because, of course, we live in this cocooned world, uh, modern man, whereby we live in houses. We don't interface with nature. We rarely sleep under the stars. We rarely, a friend of mine, she is now regularly taking herself out every morning and walking in bare feet on grass just to, to give her a linkage with the earth. That's you know and i totally agree with that we need to get back to the basics and not be so arrogant to assume that just because these people are in traditional societies that they are somehow primitive their brains are identical to ours so therefore their logical processes are identical to ours they respond to the things they see and we have done since the t- time immemorial to just dismiss it just because you don't experience it therefore it is not real because I know people who, when they lucid dream, when they have out-of-body experiences, they encounter other entities, they encounter other intelligences, and they encounter other human beings in these states. And these people report back into this reality, which I call the canoma, the reality they go into I call the pleroma, and they come back into the canoma, into the simulation, for want a better term, and they bring back information. You know, and this is self-evident that this, the other reality, is just as real, or indeed, as many people who take DMT and definitely five meo DMT say, it's actually more real. This is the illusion. This is the dream.
1: Yeah, exactly. And once you start to have some of the experiences you've described, then you begin to contemplate the idea that the, the reality that you and I are currently sharing is not only the most real reality that there is. And not only the only reality there is, but that it may actually be on the contrary an incredibly limited reality uh you know that was the idea that um you know most f- well perhaps most famously articulated in the twentieth century by Aldous Huxley you know in his mm. his idea of consciousness and the reducing valve, and that what the world you and I are sharing right now is is just a, you know a little tiny sliver um, of reality, but what you're referring to a moment ago brings us on to the idea of. Uh, these entities
0: and, can i can i can just very quickly just sure. put in there yeah, course, yeah. quite an important point to make yeah, go ahead. is that the the whole aldous huxley principle and the cd broad and Henri bergson has recently been proven there's been research very recent research being done at the university of sussex where the whereby they have been doing fmri scans of people's brains while they're under the influence of psilocybin magic mushrooms And what they wanted to do was to find out what parts of the brain lit up when somebody took magic mushrooms and started to hallucinate so they could actually do some kind of penfield-like mapping of the brain. Much to their absolute surprise, they discovered that psilocybin actually switches parts of the brain off. In other words, it stops the attenuator being effective. It stops the brain's reducing valve being able to reduce. And that is incredible news. That, for the first time, is telling us actual physical empirical proof using modern scientific methods proving that the brain is indeed a reducing valve and that these substances switch off the brain's ability to switch other bits off and they open up the doors of perception. So your point there is an incredibly valid one. My version of that is kind of like the difference between the
1: light artificial light the light that we generate and the light from the sun stars whatever the stars of course which are other suns we take them to be the same thing but they're not and what you're describing in in my mind is a little bit like turning off the street lights in a city and the more street lights you turn off the more stars you can see
0: so great, I mean, if great analogy great analogy you uh, should you should you should patent that one that's very good
1: well, it, it's, here it is in broadcast, so I can refer back to this, you know, if anyone rips it off. But uh, to pick up the point I was, got into a moment ago. So yeah, these entities, what you were saying prior to our little detour there, are they subjectively or objectively real? Now, if I have a dream encounter, not under the influence of, you know, of any substance or anything, and I encounter an entity or entities in my dream, I would be very surprised If you encountered the same people, you know, creatures, entities in your dream, you know, just your normal nighttime REM dream state, but Mm. it could happen and it it has been recorded. Some of the uh, experiences you've been describing begin to really make us ask, well, you know, if people are encountering, if if one person's encountering the same entity as you described, you know, that that, uh, person a moment ago, Uh, again and again in the same place and same circumstances with a narrative thread continuing. Like, look, I told you before. I've met you before. I know who you are. You know who I am. I am here. You're there. And we meet together. But the question then becomes, are these entities then, when we're not experiencing them or with them, are they doing something else? Mm. (laughs) So that gentleman who had the DMT experience is the entity that was interacting with him. Is it just... An entity for him is that entity interacting with other consciousnesses who are having the same sort of experience. Does that entity have a life, to you know, for want of a better word, like you or I have? Then you begin to get into the whole subjective-objective question, which is hotly debated, brought to bear on so many subjects. But actually, in many of these, uh, it's kind of like a false dichotomy. Um, you mentioned this in the context of your, the occult section of your book and Alistair Crowley. It's like it almost doesn't matter if these entities have any objective reality.
0: It's kind of like the experience, the outcome. Totally. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, the, the, there's so many themes I could draw out from that. I mean, the first one that um, intrigues me is in the in the introduction to the book. I discuss a particular incident that was was told to me by one of my associates, Samantha Treasure, who's a, a graduate anthropologist. And she told me that when she was a young girl, uh, when she was at school, she um, she had a very, very vivid dream. And in the dream, her sister let in a white cat in the dream now sam now is is, is writes about lucid dreaming and out-of-body experiences so she 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 goes into the alternate realms but when she was younger she'd had a series of curious experiences and this was one of them and in the dream her sister lets in this white cat and the white cat goes into sam's bedroom and it speaks to her and she wakes up and this dream really quite disturbed us she goes into school the next day and between classes, she gets talking to one of her friends who was a kind of a deep outsider character within the school. And the the outside the, the character, the guy started talking to her and he said, your dream last night. And Sam said, yes. And he said, you dreamt about a white cat that your sister let in, didn't you? And Sam said, yes, I did. She said, how do you know that? And he said, the cat then spoke to you, didn't it? And she said, yes. How do you know? And she said, and he said, because I was that white cat. Now, that means that other people can actually, in the certain circumstances, seem to be able to get into other people's dreams. Now, that's the first point. So some of the entities that we're likely to meet in dreamscapes are actually fellow human beings who are also dreaming in dream states, like in lucid dreaming and consensual dreaming. That's the first point. The second point is the reality of the non-human entities that we encounter in these experiences. And I think that it's far more interesting than simply that they exist somewhere out there. I believe, and this is where I use the term egregorial, and I'm quite precise in my use of the term egregorial, because it, it's actually a term that has been used many, many times, right back to biblical times, and right back to the Book of Enoch, the non the 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 apocryphal gospel. The, the, it's not part of the canon, but uh, except in the Eritrean Church and in the uh, the church, the, the 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 Coptic Christian Church in Ethiopia, where this book of Enoch is. And Enoch, I think, was the grandfather of Noah, supposedly. But in this book, he describes in great detail entities that he called the Watchers, and the Watchers came from heaven and came down to earth on Mount Hermon in uh in in uh lebanon and these creatures then procreated with women and they created the idea the biblical line of the there were giants in those days the nephilim now the interesting thing about this is that the word watcher in greek is egregor. okay so here we have a link with the idea of egregorials right back through time we have a, a semantic link a linguistic link with these entities but the egregore is a term that's used in magical terms and it's now become part of psychological discussions because an egregore is is a manifestation of when a group of consciousnesses get together they can create something that's greater than the individual consciousnesses for instance i'm reminded of a very famous book written a few years ago called the mass psychology of crowds the idea that when you get a large number of people together there is something created which is greater than them. And, of course, this is what the, the, the fascist leaders and the communist leaders learned very early on in the early 20th century. You know, the Nuremberg rallies, for instance, they were creating egregores. National socialism was an egregore. It's something that is greater. Even Coca-Cola and branding are egregores, they seem to take on a life that is greater than the people that create it. Now, there's been a series of experiments to know. I'll go back to Alexander Neal, who was a um, she was a, a Belgian French lady adventurer in the 1920s, the, the, the teens and the 20s. And she took herself off to Tibet. And when she was there, she trained herself in Tibetan magical law. And one of the things that Tibetan magic discusses is the creation of tulpas, which are thought forms that you can create and manipulate. And she and her group created a thought form, and it was a monk. They created this monk that then existed in three-dimensional consensual reality that they all saw. But then as time went on, this entity started to take on a mind of its own. It seemed to become independent. It was as if it was an entity from somewhere else that was actually using their life force, their energy, to draw itself into reality and feed off them. So it's the idea that these entities in some way are part of us, they're part of our subconscious, but they use part of our energy to bring themselves here. So there's a direct link between the observer and the observed. Now, again, in 1970, a group of researchers at the University of Toronto created a character, a ghost. They created... Um, a person that had lived in 17th century England and they named him and they gave him a backstory and again he started to manifest with with the Ouija board he started to manifest poltergeist activity and everything else as well but they had created him he didn't exist now again what is this telling us it means that reality is far more malleable and if it's made of ed- if it's at its basic form it's information. And information is thought and is processed by thought. Suddenly we can create these beings and they have sort of independence of us, but not. And my final point is, the entities, what do they do when we're not there? Well, it depends whether their idea of time and their, what time is for them is the same as time for us. It could be that that entity, it was a continuum, that the, the, the week that he was away. Taking his DMT trips for that entity could have been instantaneous or maybe not. But the book, I'm trying to build up this model of saying, well, what are these beings? And I'm coming to the conclusion that they are far more complex. There's some of them, for instance, I, deal, I have a whole section on the jinn. Now, in the Quran, it explains that jinn were created out of smokeless fire. That's plasma. It seems that plasma, and of course plasma is this, is this additional type of matter that is that is we is is only been comparatively recently discovered. And again, a researcher of my a researcher friend of mine, um, Paulino, who's an American researcher into ghosts and and things, he he believes that these creatures create manifest themselves out of plasma, and they feed off us. They feed off our fear. They need our fear in order to, to actually get nutrition in one way or another. So suddenly it's starting to get very strange and not ever so slightly disturbing. A couple of things
1: I was put in mind of uh, when you were speaking there uh, in terms of uh, pop culture uh, were in uh, Forbidden Planet, you're probably aware of, you know, the very famous mm. sci-fi movie uh, in that there's the Ed Monster that uh, terrorizes the you know the inhabitants of of the planet and uh, you know there's a crew of the spaceship that arrive and uh, to assess the situation and they too confront and battle with the ed monster and you know the clues in the name mm-hmm. and this physical uh, periodic sporadic physical manifestation or it's, you know it's some kind of it's clearly encroaching into the physical reality of those on the planet turns out to be a product of the subconscious of this guy, you know, and his paranoia and anxiety or whatever, but it takes physical form. Uh, and also in the film The Shining, mm-hmm. um, you know, and there's, uh, again, I they, all of the characters' names kind of escape me, but uh, the, the son of the main protagonist has his little friend uh, who speaks to him, you know, and tells him things, as it were. You know, that's a little entity that's unique to him. But then one of the other characters begins to be able to sort of tap into this because he shares the same, what in the film they call a gift, you know, maybe a curse, you know, but which is like you know, some form of ESP. So, and those are just a couple of things that sprung to mind about that. But, uh, you talk about this idea of the, you know, of egregores and collective, uh, unconscious and the manifestations of that. It also remind, this then reminded me of, uh, you know, we spoke earlier about, um you know, the greys, you know, the classic sort of, you know, alien uh, vision manifestation. When we have, there's another interesting layer to theorizing about all of this, when people have not only similar, encounter similar entities in altered states or in dream states, but when they do it seemingly in this 3D reality. And I'm thinking now about UFO sightings, whether it's like uh, lights in the sky uh creatures, whatever it happens to be. It's one thing for one person to say, I saw this and it was more real than real. But when you do, for example, the Phoenix Lights, if you Google that's a famous yes. supposed UFO sighting in Arizona uh, a few years back, when we collectively have these and I can turn to you as we're stood in, you know, a cornfield or whatever and say, Did you see that? And you say, Yes I did, but then mm. other other people did not see it. And yep. it, it registered Some were like, Oh, that was on our radar. You know, we saw that. And someone else said, Well, in all our electromagnetic, you know, sensory stuff, there's nothing there at all. That just a whole other level of uh, probably more questions than answers, really. But, but it's still,
0: I think, relevant to the, to, to this, um, inquiry. It does. It suggests again, doesn't it? That the power of human consciousness, both collectively and individually, is far more powerful than we believe. And that we can in some way draw these things from somewhere else. Uh, for instance, you know, in the, funnily enough, somebody posted on my Facebook wall that very sequence from Forbidden Planet uh, yesterday.
1: Oh wow! <laughs> uh, after
0: they'd after they'd read my book and they actually sh- showed that sequence, I think it might have even been today. Um, and of course, you know, I, I I love Forbidden Planet, and I thought it was just a, a fascinating idea. And in The Shining, of course, the little boy—I have a whole section, as you probably know, on on um invisible friends.
1: Yeah, well, that's what made what, me think of it. Yeah. What what
0: Halliwell calls Invisikids. Kids. And again, it seems that you know the the young mind can create these thought forms that seem to have independence of them, and can manipulate things. Now, is this an explanation for poltergeist activity? We know from research that poltergeist activity. The, the William Roll book, for instance, discusses this. Is that? The um, the poltergeist is created. Normally there'll be a, a somebody, a, a pubescent girl or somebody like that who is going through a difficult phase of growing up and suddenly poltergeists appear. We also have the issue of, and indeed the section, one of the sections that should have been in the book, but I ran out of um, words. I couldn't put it in. There was so much more. This was, there were at least two books in this book. So I had to reduce it down, but I had a whole section on um multiple personality syndrome or disassociative personality syndrome and how, again, human consciousness can split itself into individual entities. So even our idea of selfhood can break down. And of course, you know, in my earlier books, I have the concept of the Damon and the Adelon. And my next book will be draw- drawing that out into a much broader hypothesis about psychology and how we can go forward in terms of psychology but these things seem to be integral to us and again you know the egregorial i think is also we could also call it the zeitgeist or the weltgeist in that there do seem to be movies and films and poems and everything else that seem to be embodying these ideas you know and of course we both love movies and there's just so many examples of this taking place now again If so many people think about the same thing, you know, think about a a fictional character, can they come into existence? And this may explain in my book, The Damon, A Guide to Your Extraordinary Secret Self. I cite many examples of writers who had written fictional characters that they then subsequently encounter in consensual reality, Um, you know, which again is odd and weird. It seems that the, our relationship with the reality around us is far closer. And I think it is to do again with quantum physics in 1926. Max Born came up with his conclusion that the waves that are, that subatomic particles are, are not waves of physical waves, like waves in water. They are statistical waves. They're like a crime wave. So again, it means they are non-physical, but we know that the act of measurement in quantum physics, the twin slit experiment shows this, the act of measurement or the act of observation collapses a potentiality of a subatomic particle to be anywhere in the universe to be in a specific location in a specific place. But if before it's measured, it can be anywhere. And it's the act of measurement that actually makes that subatomic particle become solid, well, as solid as they can be, and it be in a particular place, which again suggests that if that, and if everything is made up of subatomic particles, which it is, it means there's a direct relationship between the act of measurement and observation and what is external. It's just at the moment, I believe we suffer from what the ancient Greeks called amnesis. We don't realize the true nature of the reality around us. But as we develop and as we discover more about the basic building blocks of the world around us, we'll start to realize that it's not out there. It's all in here. There is no out there. We are one singular consciousness experiencing itself subjectively, as Bill Hicks said. And that we are, be- we are partially, our consciousness is evolved in order for the universe to become self-aware. It's the universe itself becoming self-aware as we evolve.
1: Yes, and those last few thoughts combined with what we were saying about uh, children and invisible friends bring me on to um, another very important aspect of all this. And it was something that written about is the author of The Cosmic Egg and then later The Crack in the Cosmic Egg it might be Joseph Chilton, Chilton Pierce. I, I think that's his name. or It's certainly a version of that. Mm. But anyway, I've got the titles of his books correct. And he talked about uh, how consciousness evolves over the course of a human life. And essentially, he wrote a lot about children and about how we lose important dimensions of our openness of consciousness as we get older. And he was saying mm. that between ages of naught and six, children are in one state of consciousness, which is basically almost psychedelic tripping which might explain some of their behaviour. Uh, then between 6 and 12, uh, another one, and then 12 and 18, a, a different one again, all gradually moving towards uh, the kind of numbed, dulled, you know, mm. programs, you know, uh, unchanging states that many people end up in. And this leads me, uh, the, the main point I'm making here is that belief and expectation can affect perception. So the childlike mind is open is uh, as you know no preconceived ideas but the adult mindset in relation to a lot of what we've been talking about said this is not possible this cannot exist therefore i cannot see it and this explains again you think about the little boy in the shining seeing all this stuff and being freaked out by all this stuff and the adults are going what's wrong with you son we only have to look at our probably our own pets for an example of this you know yeah dogs hearing things that we can't hear cats attacking shadows on the wall you know but for as far as the cats concerned there's something there so yeah. but our beliefs and our ex- expectations affect our perception and if you then map that onto the materialist reductionist western mindset you know this this ultra scientific one then of course you're going into you're going through life and into experiences with this pre uh, determined idea of what is possible and naturally, that excludes so much
0: from your, uh, your senses, from your experience. That's an excellent point. And I'm reminded here, I have a section on the writings of Henri Corbin, who uh, was a French writer, and he, he was fascinated by Sufism, the esoteric poem of, of Islam. And he discussed in great detail what he called the imaginal, the imaginal realm. And the imaginal realm is just as real as this realm, and it's again brought into, in by, by consciousness. Now, could this explain in many ways why it is that in more religious times or in more spiritual times, the manifestations are more around, that they're there because they were around? And, you know, when people see uh, BVMs, the Blessed Virgin Murrays, when they see, them at and Fatima and, and Lewards and everything else as well. It seems to be that they're drawn into by the expectations of the crowds and they fulfill the expectations. And in my book, this is what I argue, that I argue that the greys are full, still full, just fulfilling our expectations. We're now expecting them to be in flying machines, in spaceships. You know, in the, the, the 1880s, 1890s, they expected them to be in airships. And of course, we had the great flap in North America of the airships and the earths were being seen everywhere, and then they mysteriously disappear. Then the the the, the 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 image starts to change. It's as if we manipulate our culture, and our culture creates these things. And one of my final points, and it's something I'd love to write about in a future book, which intrigued me in my research and my previous books, was the amount of times that, that physicists... Seem to be bringing into existence subatomic particles.
1: Yes, yeah, so they had this. With, sorry to cut across you, but okay, if you, okay. they had this with the Higgs boson, so mm. many people wrote, "Did the scientists at CERN bring, bring the Higgs boson into existence?" Because they they
0: so much wanted to discover it to see it. Correct, because there was a very famous. They were looking for the muon, and there was um, an American physicist called uh, E. E. Rabi. I think it was E. E. Rabi, and they they had they say they postulate something, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's an act of desperation. You know, for example, in 1900, Max Planck did not he and an act as he said in an act of desperation, he plugged in some certain numbers and thought the only way I can explain the observed phenomenon that I'm seeing is that energy comes in quanta; it's not continuous. It comes in quanta. And then lo and behold, we find everywhere quantum physics develops. Now, again, E. Rabi, when they discovered the muon, because they weren't expecting it, it's actually called the particle zoo. Marcus Chown in his book calls it the particle zoo, as if we are bringing them to existence by thinking about them. But he turned around when they discovered one particular subatomic particle, he said, Who ordered that? And it was as if they were bringing them into existence. And I just believe that even our science is created by; it's culturally based. It's it's even to do with the way our language works. The Sapir-Wolf hypothesis, the way in which words seem to create the world around us. You know that the idea that the ancient Greeks started to think of objects in space with identities because their language was the first language that actually had sounds tied to letters like dog, D-O-G, obviously that's not Greek. Slos uh, is Greek for dog, but using the example, D-O-G, the letters D-O-G, make the sound dog, and then we have an idea of an abstraction of dog on the page. And we start to think differently then. And we think differently all the time, and the world is created around us. We create the world as we go along. And I think the new world and the new paradigm you know, again, you know, it's something I've cited many times about the the, the idea of the theory of scientific revolutions. Uh, Cohn's famous book. The idea is that the revolutions take place not because the information is out there, but we create the information to facilitate the change. Very intriguing. Well, didn't someone once say, "In the beginning was the word"? You didn't they just? Yes. <laughs> And the word was made flesh and the word and, and you know, the creation, everything we bring into existence, the world around us. And I, I feel that I'm tripping on the edge of something really, really exciting at this model. I get so excited sometimes and sometimes I'm in complete awe of the amount of information that is being pulled together here. You know, we've got all these pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. We just need to put them together and we could change the world.
1: The world is changing, Anthony, and I trust for the better. Just a closing thought from me, uh, one little brief anecdote because it relates to all this and it happened to me quite recently. And that was a dream experience I had. And in this dream, I don't remember much about the, the, the details of the dream and it almost doesn't matter, but I encountered someone that I knew, but that I was, you know, part of my life a very long time ago and I haven't seen for a very long time. And of them, I just remember this is what I woke up with this, this uh, experience, this thought. I asked, what are you doing here? And they simply said, I have dreams too. Oh wow. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so it was like, well, I'm, I'm allowed to come in here as well. But I have done a lot of work and a lot of research on extraterrestrial life. And I know it's something that interests you as well. And a lot of people have theorized that the universe should be teeming with life, quote unquote. It should be everywhere. And yet so far, we have found no evidence whatsoever of anything out there. And I know the out there is unimaginably vast and we haven't even begun to probe it. But so far, nothing, no sign of anything. And people say, oh, hang on a minute. There's this, there's that. Yeah. We might have found some water on Mars or whatever, but, and, you know, but there's no concrete evidence, no sign of life. And. There's an interesting collection of writing in a book called Inner Paths to Outer Space. Oh, uh, yeah. Exactly. And so this. Right book. It is, isn't it? Yeah. And this has led me round to a closing thought, which is, is all of this, the universe is teeming with life, but it isn't, we might be just a very rare example of this sort of kind of fleshy biological stuff <laughs> stuck on a rock that that, that might not be the dominant form of life in the universe that it might be on other levels you know john lilly's nine levels for example Mm -hmm. it might be elsewhere and that we're kind of we are that unique maybe and rare and special because you know there's almost nothing else or perhaps nothing else that's manifested just quite like us
0: but most of the rest of it is doing something else on other levels I think that is superb. I, I couldn't even add to that because that is a fantastic observation that I'd never thought of before. But of course, it is—you know—the idea that there there are other life forms and we're looking in the wrong place. And we are, as you say, we're maybe a form of algae <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> sitting on a rock and don't see anything else because we don't exist. We're like uh, Abbott's Abbott's flat world creatures, you know, that um, we we just don't see it, and it's it's in the psychical realm. I hate that term, but I can't think of anything else. Um, but but that I think is I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think that's areas of uh, of um, more research there for us. So Greg, thank you for that one. Well, I think you've got many more books in you, Anthony, along these lines, and I hope
1: you pick up these threads and uh, you know pursue them. But anyway, today we've been talking about your latest, just out, widely available, "The Hidden Universe: An Investigation into Non-Human Intelligences." Before we close out tell people details of your website or anything else you might be working on or want to share
0: right okay one of the most important things at the moment for me is to build up the number of people who are following me on Instagram uh, so if I, I need to get to a thousand I've only been there comparatively recently but once I've got a thousand I can do far more exciting things in terms of postings um, so if you want to join me there it's uh, I'm uh, cheat the ferryman 54. So it's cheat the ferryman fifty four on there. I'm also very active on Facebook. Um, recently started a new Facebook wall as well, called the Anthony Peak Consciousness Hour, where I'm podcasting quite regularly. Go doing Facebook Live, so check that out. Again, just look up Anthony Peak and you'll find the links to there. Um, in terms of events and things, I've got a few events coming up, uh, but the big event is one I'm doing in at um, uh, Contact in the Desert. On the last weekend of May in uh, Indian Wells in California, where there'll be myself, I'm doing uh, two panel discussions. I'm doing a workshop and I'm doing a lecture. And with the workshop, I will have uh, at least three or four Lucia lights, uh, uh, hypnagogic lights with me. And it'll be the first time that I'll be discussing in detail my overall overarching theory of reality or my hypothesis or, as my critics say, my speculations. Uh, Website is AnthonyPeak.com. So please join me on the uh, but it's very much Instagram that is the place I'm now po- I'm posting regularly on there so all my latest news is on there my ideas my thoughts my feelings this will be up on there so it's Instagram and Facebook thank Splendid.
1: you Anthony thank you once again for joining us today on dot thanks Greg
0: as always a wonderful interview